Well, good morning. I hope everybody's had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Please take your Bible, your phone, your pad, or whatever, and turn with me this morning to Romans 4. Romans 4. And as you're doing that, I wanted to share a little inside information. Uh, Pastor Chris has been a very good planner, and he asked me several months ago if I would teach today. And I've known for a while that I wanted to teach from Romans 4. I knew this before Pastor Chris taught on Romans 3 for Reformation Sunday. And so any similarity of today's teaching to Chris's sermon on Romans 3 or to any recent adult Bible Sunday school lessons or even last week's sermon is purely providential uh, since we don't believe in coincidence. Secondly, along with Chris, I also want to give you to my church family my congratulations. So, congratulations. For some, this makes sense, and for those who have, uh, are a little newer, this will make more sense a little later. But thirdly, as you have turned to Romans 4, before we read this passage, um, I need to give you some context, uh, because Romans 1 through chapter 11 is a long argument by the Apostle Paul. And this morning, I'm jumping into, diving into, parachuting into whatever analogy you want to use uh, to his treatise. So we, to understand the scripture that we're going to uh, be reading today, let me give you a little background and uh, catch you up on Paul's logical argument, if you will. We do not have any record or tradition of any apostle establishing the church at Rome. Uh, we know Paul didn't establish it. Because later in this uh, letter, he says he wants to come and visit uh, the church. And I fall on the side of the argument that Peter was never really in Rome either, and he didn't establish it. I'm trying to signal upstairs. There we go. This is an interesting photo of um, a burial cave in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Uh, notice how many bone boxes, ossuaries are there. This is not a typical family uh, burial plot. In fact, the names that were found on, this, on these uh, ossuaries would leap off of the pages of the New Testament, including this one, including this one. There we go. I, I'm not sure how well it shows up, but this is an ossuary that has the name of Simon Barjona on it. That's Peter. And so that first picture you saw is really one of the first church cemeteries. It may be the first century church cemetery of the, the church in Jerusalem. So if you want to get into that, we'll, we'll talk about that some more later. But the point is, rather than uh, an, an apostle establishing that church, most commentaries and scholars believe that the church in Rome was probably founded by some Jews who came to believe in Jesus as their Messiah when Peter preached on the day we call Pentecost. Pentecost is the fourth spring feast called the Feast of Weeks, which comes 50 days after Passover, and Jews would come to Jerusalem. And so some Jews from Rome probably made that long journey from the capital city of Rome uh, to Jerusalem, and I think there uh, they probably um, heard Peter, and this, a group of them probably came together, and they were saved, baptized, received the Holy Spirit, and they went back to Rome and started a church. Then sometime about 10 years later, in the reign of Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, also known as Emperor Claudius, from 41 to about 53 A.D., all the Jews were exiled from Rome. Acts 18, 1 through 2 records this event for us. It says, after these things, he, and that's Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. After five years, the Jews were allowed to return, and then uh, Paul wrote this letter, they think, around 58 AD. So um, the church at Rome seems to have done well. It survived having the founders exiled, which sort of implies a couple of things. When these Jews who came from Pentecost 
founded the church. They grew that church, including witnessing to the Gentiles, and Gentiles were converted and joined the church. And the Gentile believers were strong enough in their faith by God's grace to keep the church going during the exile. But when they did come back, mm, there might have been a little tension between the two groups, as you can imagine, under these circumstances. Uh, Maybe we could imagine it this way. Um, What if everyone at Grace Fellowship Church who's been here for, let's say, five years was suddenly kicked out of Virginia? That would include the pastor, the elders, the teachers, the worship, a lot of the worship team, deacons, and then the rest of you kept calm and carried on. Then after about five years, we all came back and we wanted our positions back. Now, do you see the tension that could have occurred? So Paul writes a letter to the Roman church, and he doesn't call out any of these problems that, that the church might be having, but rather inspired by the Spirit, he writes that this marvelous letter in which he commends the Romans because their faith was being proclaimed throughout all the earth. So in chapter 1, Paul gives us his purpose. That's verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek now, this may kind of hint at that, that, that problem, right, that tension. And in chapter 1, he condemns the unbelieving Gentiles, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. At this point in the letter, the Jews are probably thinking, all right, Paul, that's the way to give it to them. You go. But in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul turns his sights on the moralist Jews in verse 1 of chapter 2, and says, Therefore you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And by the time you get down to verse 24 in chapter 2, he's telling the Jews, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So then this leads us to chapter 3 and the conclusion. If you want to look at me in chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 and 3.23, here's his summation. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So he sums it up in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone's in trouble. Jew, Gentile, we have all rebelled against God, our Creator. And because of our rebellion, we have earned our wages, which is the wrath of God and the just penalty of death for our rebellion. How then can we be justified before a holy God? How can we have this death sentence removed? How can our relationship with God be restored? So Paul gives us that answer in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The answer to this important problem is Jesus He is the righteousness of God that has been manifested, and His righteousness is ours through faith in Him to all who believe. The Word became flesh and died on the cross to pay the penalty of rebellion, the penalty that we deserve, and we see in verse 24 that we are justified as a gift by His grace. Now, to learn more about God's justification, I refer you back to Pastor Sermon on October 29th, Reformation Sunday. 
And I'm sorry uh, for the long lead up, but we finally have arrived to our text, Romans 4, where Paul is now going to give us an illustration of God's justification. So let's, let's start. And I do want to go back into Romans 3 to run up into Romans 4, and we'll go to about verse, 4, uh, verse 16. So let's start in Romans 3, verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. What's that distinction? It's that distinction between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so then where is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. All right, so there's the background. Now Paul, in his sermon or in his letter, he's going to give us an example, and he's going to use Abraham. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is now credited as a favor, but as what is due, not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised, on the Jews or the Gentiles? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised." For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we, I pray this morning that you would open our spiritual eyes as we wrestle with this text, strengthen us in the inner person, that we may see the great love of God. And Father, I thank you for the word, which is, is really simple. 
because you um, give wisdom to the simple, and your word does that. So Holy Spirit, uh, use this, I pray this morning, that as we see the great justification that we have, that we would know the peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, and I won't go into the rest. We, as believers, are sons and daughters of Abraham through faith. Look at verses 11 and 12 in chapter 4. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Okay, so that's us, the Gentiles. Um, that the righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision, which is the Jews, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of faith of our Abraham, the father Abraham, which he, um, he had while uncircumcised. So Abraham is the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's us, the Gentile believers. He's also the father of Israel, and that's the circumcised. But interestingly, Paul makes another distinction. He's also the father of Jewish believers who are also circumcised. So Paul also expounds on this point in Galatians 3, and you'll find this theme in other letters of Paul. Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9 says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All nations shall be blessed by you. So then those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So we Gentile believers are how God intended to fulfill his promise that all the nations shall be blessed. Abraham's spiritual family extends to every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And then later in Romans, Paul will come back to this theme, as, and he revisits this idea telling us that we have been grafted in to the, the olive tree, grafted into the true spiritual Israel. Uh, as the war continues in Israel, uh, I want to give you some caution. We, we must be discerning. There's a lot of confusion and many different opinions of these events that are going on. I also know that these wars are creating a lot of questions and anxiousness in, in my own neighbors. We don't know God's reasons for planning to, to permit these events, but we do know that Jesus did say there would be wars and rumors, rumors, rumors of war. As the war continues, it seems like there will be more and more hatred directed at Israel and the Jewish people. But for us, there is no room for hate. We are told we're to even love our enemies. And though we are a part of the true Israel spiritually, we are not part of the Israel state. I believe, as I think many of you do, that the reestablishment of Israel was foretold in Scripture and that they would be reestablished in a state of unbelief. We also believe here that God has a future plan dealing with Israel in which Daniel calls at a time Jacob's trouble and which we call the tribulation. Some of the families that have been joining us don't know that my, Gail my wife, and my wife and I, by God's blessing, made a trip to Jerusalem. And by God's providence, we went in August. One of the things we noticed and had it pointed out to us by an Israeli guide is that everyone is broken up into different factions. They don't get along at all. And I'm not just talking about the Palestinians and the Israel, Israelis. In Judaism, 
you have the ultra-Orthodox, the Orthodox, and the Reformed. And those three groups don't get along. Men and women are separated into different sections to pray at the Western Wall. So you, you see there on the right the, is the women's court, and over to the left are the men's. Gail took this picture because she liked how many women were there compared to the men that day. But even then, so even within Judaism, they, they separate. But you also have differences in hatred between Jews who came from Europe against the ones who came from Spain. The Arab Israelis don't like the Palestinians, and Hamas doesn't like the PLO. Even the Roman Catholics don't get along with the Greek or Eastern Orthodox, who are in the same building of the Holy Sepulchre where they share responsibilities. It took them years for them to agree on anything like putting in toilets for the visitors. This can also be seen in how they live in groups. Jerusalem itself is divided into the Muslim quarter, a Christian quarter, an Armenian quarter, and a Jewish quarter. Orthodox Jews make their own communities, and ultra-Orthodox Jews make their own communities in Judea and Samaria. Even in Nazareth, which is supposed to be an integrated community, the Arabs live on one side of the town and the Jews in another Hatred, unkindness, physical assaults, and unforgiveness abounds. There is no concept of grace, and they remember all the past discretions. We had a guide that we hired. This is Modi. Uh, Gail and I found it interesting that Modi, who is not by any stretch of the imagination religious or observant, kept saying that the only way for this to end is for the Messiah to return. And when he does return, he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. So this picture is taken from the west side of Jerusalem on a restaurant about four stories up. And you can see across the Dome of the Rock to that hill on the far side, and that is the Mount of Olives. Olives. To the right, behind the dome, is just a massive Jewish graveyard. And this is what's neat about this. We know that the Messiah, when he comes for the second time, will plant his feet right there on the Mount of Olives. Now, you can keep that slide up for a second. But in relation to the current events, we must remember there is no room for anti-Semitism or hate. God is working out his plan. God is the judge and the only judge who judges 100% correctly. So let's continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, both Messianic Jews and the Palestinian Christians, that God might use them in a mighty way to show the glory of the gospel of grace. But you know what's missing from this picture? Not that one. But anyway, the temple. The temple was missing from the other picture. But yeah, okay, so there's no temple there, right? But my favorite artifact is this one. There we go. Pastor Chris showed you a picture of this a couple months ago of an intact one. And he mentioned this in his sermon last week. I thought he was going to take my whole sermon. But this was, this was the sign, the, ins the, the inscription posted at the temple warning Gentiles that they could not enter into the temple, and if they did, they would be killed. The reason why I like this artifact, and it's one of my favorites, because it reminds me that just as the veil was torn in the temple separating man from God, so too when the temple was destroyed, this plaque was broken. It reminds me that the barrier between Jews and Gentiles is broken. And now in Christ, through faith, we are part of the family of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female to be separated at the Western Wall. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring by faith. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. But let's go back to our passage now in Romans 4, and let's take some time now to look at Paul's main point. Paul is going to use Abraham as an illustration in his logical argument, and Paul wants to answer this question. How was Abraham justified but that raises a question. Why did Paul choose Abraham as his example? Why not any of the others from Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith, right? 
Abraham was and still is highly revered by the Jews. In fact, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam to this day are known as what? The three Abrahamic faiths. We still have that children's song. After 4,000 years, we're singing about Abraham. And even the attempt at peace treaties in the Middle East today are called the Abraham Accords. And in the first century, Abraham was highly revered by the Jewish people and the leadership. John 8 gives us the account of an entire episode of Jesus having a discourse with the religious leaders. And the religious leaders in the argument bring up Abraham as their father, saying, we are Abraham's offspring. It's later in that chapter, you may remember, where Jesus states, before Abraham was born, I am, to which they then picked up stones to throw at him. So Abraham is a very important person to the Jews, especially during this time period, and thus is a perfect example for Paul to use. But then this sort of leads to another question. Why did God choose Abraham? See, Abraham is not listed in the table of nations in Genesis 10, so God did not choose him because he was the head of a nation. Rather, he chose Abraham to make a nation for himself. But furthermore, Joshua 24 tells us, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham was an idolater. He probably worshipped a moon god of that area. So Abraham was godly, and Jewish sources even say that Terah, his father, made and sold idols. So Abraham did not start, start out as a godly man, but in Genesis 12, it says that God said to Abraham. In other words, the word of the Lord came to Abraham somehow. Now, this is a question I want to ask Abraham. Later, you can look it up again in John 8. Jesus said that many will come from the east and west. That's, that's us, Gentiles. Many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You and I will get to eat with Abraham. And I want to ask him, how did God call you? When Genesis 12 says, he said to you, did, did God do it in a vision like Genesis 15 when he made the covenant with you? Did you hear an audible voice calling you like the prophet Samuel? Or did God come and visit you like he did when he was going to pronounce judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? Think about this for a second. Uh, little side, I guess. A person with two traveling companions shows up to Abram's house in Haran, knocks on the door, says, Abraham, we'd like to come in. So Abraham invites them in, being a good host, and he sits down to dinner with them. After a meal, this unknown person says, I want you to go forth from your country and your relatives. I want you to go on a permanent camping trip, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I will make you great. What would happen if somebody did that to you? You'd, you'd have to wonder. But it had to be a miracle of God and Abraham to cause Abraham to trust God like that. If we use Hebrews eleven six definition of faith, Abraham believed that God existed, which is another part of the miracle because he was an idolater. And then Abraham trusted that God would reward, in other words, fulfill his promises. And the only way to explain it is that God had somehow given Abraham the gift of faith, which means God, by his grace, gave Abraham a new life and a new heart. This is why Paul can say in verse 3 of Romans 4, and he's quoting Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God justifies those who believe in him. The key word here is believed. This word has an element of trust in it. Abraham trusted God. He trusted the promises that God gave him. And so again, from Hebrews eleven six, we know that for without faith or trust, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. 
And that future reward is those promises are given. And if you turn to Genesis 15 to look up where God said he was righteous, you will notice this justification, his reckoning as righteousness, occurs before the covenant God made with Abraham starting in verse 9 of that same chapter. It occurs before Abraham's circumcision in chapter 17. It occurs before the birth of Isaac in chapter 21 and before the offering of Isaac in chapter 22. And if you read chapter 22 of Genesis, you'll see that after God provided the ram for the sacrifice, God didn't say to Abraham that because you didn't withhold your son, I count you as righteous, but rather God said, because you didn't withhold your son, I will greatly bless you and and that through you all the nations will be blessed. So we can ask ourselves this question then, what comes first, the trust or the works? The answer is obvious. It's the trust. God, Abraham trusted God before he left. God trusted Abraham before he took Isaac for the sacrifice. So God counted Abraham as righteous, in other words, justified, because Abraham believed. There's another question I want to ask here, just as a little aside. Let me ask you this question. Who's the one who is active and who is passive in these verses? God is active. God gives the gift of faith, Ephesians 2. Abraham received it and now believes. Furthermore, God is active in that he justifies. And who who does God justify? The good person? The religious person? No. God justified the ungodly idolater. So here's the sequence we see in all this. This is the sequence in the, uh, that we see in the example of Abraham that Paul lays out for us a little bit later in chapter uh, 8 of Romans. God chose Abraham, not because of anything Abraham was or did, but even though Abraham was ungodly, he then called Abraham and spoke to him. And this is an effectual call that has to include the gift of faith and repentance. And because God effectually called Abraham, Abraham believes and God counted him as righteous. In other words, he justified Abraham. So if we look back in, in verse 9 of Romans 4, we see that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Look down at verse 16 in Romans 4. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. In, in verse 20, a little bit later, we see this, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And in, uh, in this, I'm sorry, I was the wrong chapter. Um, we, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So righteousness comes through faith and it's and is accounted to those who believe, who have a faith in God. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul also wants us to, to see and know that justification is not as a result of works. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is also illustrating uh, this through Abraham's life. We've already seen um, that all these things that Abraham did occurred after he was justified. But go back to Romans uh, 4, verse 2, and we see, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And what verse does that remind you of? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that anyone should boast. If you skip down to verse 9, I'm going to come back to verses 7 and 8 here in a, in a minute. Um, we, we, we see this. Paul continues to emphasize uh, that it's not based on works, so that before Abraham received the sign of circumcision and even before there was a law to keep, God justified Abraham. 
And so, again, just a reminder, we've already seen how God justified Abraham before the covenant, before the circumcision, before Isaac, before the obedience to sacrifice of Isaac. And of all those things, if it were based on works and God justified him based on doing all those things, then grace has no meaning. It is nullified. But in Ephesians, we know that God's purpose is to, to the praise of the glory of God's grace. So our justification can't be by works. Nor can it be through keeping the law. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law doesn't come to Moses till hundreds of years later. So Abraham couldn't have kept the law because it's not till later does it come. So this is another observation uh, that Gail and I made on our trip to Israel. What we saw was a whole lot of people who are trying to be justified by their works or by keeping the law. It's, it's quite sad, actually. The Orthodox Jews are the group of Jews who are the strictest in their attempt to keep the law. Uh, you can see it in the way they dress. You'll see, you know, the, the curly hair, the hats, the, 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 the dress that they wear. Um, you can see it in their devotion at the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. On Shabbat, starting Friday evenings, everything closes down because uh, they're trying to keep the law. And hotels even have a Shabbat elevator. We were on the eighth floor, but the elevator had to stop at every floor so that an observant Jew wouldn't even have to press a button because that would be doing work. Now, uh, many of you know uh, or may know of Dennis Prager. He's a popular conservative commentator, author, and a Jew. Uh, He's on a panel with several other uh, scholars hosted by Jordan Peterson uh, going through and analyzing Genesis and, and now Exodus. Uh, it, it's hard to watch, um, but I caught one segment discussing the Ten Commandments. And, and Dennis Prager said, we Jews don't have a concept like the Christians who say that you have committed adultery in your heart if you lust after someone. The thought isn't the sin. It is the actual act or the doing. It's not about the heart. To which I wanted to scream at the TV and said, of course it is about the heart. You can find it throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Leviticus 19.17 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Psalm 7.10 says, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. And God said, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. The commandment is for what? To love God with all our hearts. And in the new covenant, I will remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. To the Jew, it's about works and the law, and they have no concept of grace or forgiveness. In fact, Modi, our guide we hired to take us to northern Israel, showed us what is called the Shabbat line. Shabbat line is a wire attached to poles that encircle an entire community, especially of the ultra-Orthodox Jews living in the West Bank. You see, the law would forbid them to carry home food from a Shabbat meal from grandmother's house. So they put up this line and say, as long as we're within this line, it's like we are in our own home, so we can carry the food back. See, it's, it's about what they do. They try to come up with all these workarounds, but their heart is far from God. It's sad, actually. They work and they work, yet they will never know for certain if they have done enough, and their self-justification blinds them to their violations of God's law. Just before we made our trip, um, in one of these ultra-Orthodox sections of Jerusalem, they about beat a girl to death because they didn't like the way she was dressed. 
They tell you when you go to the Western Wall or into some of these areas to dress accordingly. You gotta, ladies, got to cover your shoulders. Again, see, it's, it, for them, it's about the doing. It's about the works. It's not about the heart. They don't know that they will go to heaven, and they can never know if they've done enough. Paul illustrates uh, for us in Abraham's life that justification is not by works, but through faith, and that is a gift of God. However, and I'm sorry, I feel like I'm going along here. I've got some great news for you. Congratulations. Go back to verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. For those of you who have been recently attending uh, earlier, Chris taught us from the Sermon on the Mount that the word blessed has this idea of congratulations. That we are blessed means we are better off. The other type of person we saw in Israel uh, were the Roman Catholics. Uh, at the time when Constantine's mother, uh, Helena, came to Jerusalem, uh, she designated several sites where she was told certain events in the life of Christ occurred, and then she established a church over all these different sites. And so now those are all part of the Roman Catholic Church. Whereas the Jew must work for salvation, the Roman Catholic doctrine makes it such that you have to add works to your faith. However, by adding the necessity of doing works to ensure their salvation, the Roman Catholic, like the Jew who is working for salvation, doesn't know if they are this blessed man in Romans 4.8. Now, we understand that God can give the gift of faith to whoever he wants, and there are some genuine believers in the Roman Catholic Church, just as there are some non-believers who have not been given the gift of faith sitting in many Protestant churches today. But if you understand the, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, you can't say that all of your sins are covered or that God will not take into account all of your sins. In this article from the Catholic Answers website, I found this quote. Thus, we can agree with our Protestant friends and say as Christians we have been past has justified and saved through our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But we also agree with our Lord that there is another sense in which we are being saved and justified by cooperation with God's grace in our lives, and we hope to finally be saved and justified by our Lord on the last day. They can only hope to be finally be saved. So let me ask you this. Who's better off? Who's blessed? The one that hopes they can do enough to make it to heaven? Or the person who knows that their sins are covered and whose sin the Lord will not take into account? Based on my research into the Roman Catholic doctrine, it's, it's like this. Um, when a baby is baptized, they're saved. And they get this, what's called the state of grace, where their grace account is full. So their grace account is full. It's kind of like having a pile or an account of gold. And from here, a person can lose some of their grace account by committing venial sins, which are sins that don't lead to spiritual death. However, they can regain grace back into their account. So here's another quote from that website. They can merit, you can merit, you can earn as supernatural reward or payment only by being able to act or do something above their nature. And once satisfying grace is in your soul, you can increase it by every supernatural good action you do, but it's easy to lose it. Some of these works that the Roman Catholic adherent must do to earn more grace into their accounts include doing all the sacraments, which include attending mass, doing penance, indulgences, and keeping the law of Moses and good works. So justification to the Roman Catholic is earned through grace and merit. For us, it is through faith and God's grace. For them, justification is fused little bit by little bit as they earn it. For us, justification is imputed. It's, it's, it's credited to us. For them, it is temporal. They can lose it. For us, it is eternal. For them, it is given to those who are good and who have earned it. For us, we see that justification is given to the ungodly. And as a, as a result, they can only hope 
that it is enough to get them into heaven. But for us, it gives us great assurance and peace. I like how Dr. James White puts it. For the true believer in Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. For the Roman Catholic, the cross was necessary but not sufficient, so they have to re-sacrifice Christ in the Mass because the first time wasn't enough, which kind of upsets me. Um, this is going to be harsh. Um, it, it makes Jesus out to be a liar. When on the cross, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. But the Greek word has so much more meaning. Uh, there's a pastor who I listen to frequently. He uh, likes to tell a story of when he was a young seminarian. In his Greek class, the professor asked if everyone had finished their homework. I believe it was one of those first homework assignments for the beginning of Greek class. And this pastor, a young seminarian, wanted to show off a little bit, answered, Tetelestai. Well, the learned Greek professor began to humble this young man and to instruct the entire class by asking if the student had finished all the homework for the entire semester. You see, the Greek word has the meaning that it is entirely finished. It is complete. The debt is paid in full. What is that debt? Our debt is death. Jesus paid in full our debt, which means we can't pay anymore. There's no other price higher that could be paid than the death penalty. We don't add 200 hours of community service to someone who's been given the death penalty. Um, let's say, uh, let's do another illustration because this word has this meaning as well. Let's say you pay off your house. And one day we, you know, we hope to do that, right? You pay off your mortgage, you're, uh, you, you paid it in full. It's paid in full. Would you then send $100 or $500 to the bank every month Maybe because you don't want the bank to get mad or you just want to stay on their good side in case you wanted something later? Of course not. You wouldn't add anything to it. It's paid in full. For the Roman Catholic who comes to the church as an adult, see, all their past sins are forgiven, but somehow they have to pay for their sins in the future. But Romans 5 teaches us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The godly for the ungodly. The, the one who knew no sin died for us sinners in our place. In other words, when Christ died, all of our sins were in the future. Hebrews 10, 14 says, for a, by a single offering, once, one time, not over and over again, he has perfected for all time eternally for those who are being sanctified. And Psalm 103, verse 3 and verse 12 God is the one who says he pardons all, all our iniquities. What does all mean? All. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In Colossians 2, God has made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our justification, our right standing with God is eternal. All of our sins have been covered. My sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross. All the legal demands are met. All the transgressions forgiven. Our record of debt is canceled. There isn't even a record of our debt anymore. When you ponder these truths this week, I pray you will be overwhelmed by that thought of just how much we are loved. Let me finish up and, and ask then, how might we apply the teaching of justification this morning? Paul helps us there in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first application is peace. You should have lots of peace. There's a sense in which we are at peace with God where once we were his enemies and at war with him. There's also a sense that you should not have any anxiety about whether or not you have done enough. You've heard this saying many times, I'm sure it's not about what you do, but what Jesus has done. 
Unlike the Jew who has to worry if he has kept the entire law, or the Roman Catholic, whether or not he has committed a mortal sin or a vin- so many vin- uh, venial sins that he won't make it to heaven, or even the Muslim who doesn't know if Allah is in a good mood and will let him into paradise that day, you can have complete, peaceful, blood-bought assurance that your sins are covered. They will not be taken into account. Congratulations, favored ones. The second application is forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us this wonderful description of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Here's another scripture that tells us that God's perfect, kind, patient love does not keep a record of wrongs, but is forgiving. How about you? Are you keeping an account rec- rec- uh, accounting record of wrongs for your spouse or someone else? I must make a confession. I was. Up until recently, um, recently in a rare moment, I got angry with my wife, Gail. Now, this isn't about what happened, what she did. It's, it's about my reaction to it. It's one of those few times but I couldn't sleep. Everything is running through your mind, and the list is running through my mind. Until 3 a.m., and I'm finally exhausted and more in a right mind as I start to pray. I know, okay, God, I can't divorce her. I can't murder her. <laughs> Committing her somewhere probably wouldn't work either. Blessedly, gracefully, all I'm left with is to forgive her. And not just this incident, I realized the whole list has to go. And be forgiven and remember no more, just as I have been loved and forgiven, because all my sins are covered, gone. There's no record of them anymore. Along with peace and forgiveness, lastly, we should exalt Having exercised our minds this morning and working through Romans 4 and other scriptures, having all your sins covered, I hope you can see and comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth, the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. And having been transformed by it, we exalt, as Romans 5.2 says, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And we worship and praise the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So as you go about this week, my prayer is that you will praise and thank God that all your sins are covered. You are blessed. He remembers them no more. Let's pray.